Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 29th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Save Navin Hospital campaign says it expects 10,000 people to march in Navin tomorrow to oppose what it says is the imminent closure of the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital and with that, the closure of the hospital's ICU beds. The government says campaigners are mistaken. There is is no risk to the hospital being downgraded not yet anyhow that's both sides of this argument as it stands so the thing is of course both sides can't be right not at the same time anyhow so is politics at play and who do you be- believe? Let's hear from both sides now. We're joined by Peter Tobin, who's uh, named to TD for Mead West and also the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Thomas Byrne is the Minister for European Affairs and a Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East. And good morning to both of you and thank you for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Minister, perhaps we could start uh, with yourself as the representative of government today. Can you outline to us what the situation is before people go to march in order to save the hospital. Does the hospital need saving? Well, I'm the representative of government, Michael, but also proudly I'm the representative of the people of Mead East. Uh, and Navin Hospital is open, uh, and Navin Hospital is staying open, uh, despite what Pallet uh, will say. Um, I certainly wish everyone well who'll be marching tomorrow, uh, but the hospital is there. We've had this every few years from Pallet about various issues. Last year we had the stroke situation. While stroke deaths are going down nationally, Patter's campaigning about uh, on, on, on the stroke services last year. Um, this, this hospital is open and that message needs to be out there to people because quite frankly there are posters everywhere, Save Navin Hospital, which don't talk about the very small proposal which has now been stopped by the Minister for Health, and I mean that it has been stopped, um, which is a very, very small part of what the hospital provides. That hospital is open, it is providing services, it is I would say providing more services than it ever has been and will be into the future. Uh, there is no doubt about that. Now, I w- as I said, I wish everyone well, uh, but the Minister for Health, after meeting myself, uh, Damien English and Shane Castles, has decided to call a halt to this until he meets HSE to see exactly what they want to do um, and to see to listen to concerns, because I've spoken to, to the clinical lead in the hospital and they have concerns. There's no question about that. I can't deny that. Uh, but we want to hear those concerns in full. And we want to see what the solutions are to make sure that there's a proper and safe hospital service there uh, for, for the people of Mead, uh, which Navin Hospital is one of a number of hospitals that serve people of Mead. And in fact, most people, uh, myself included, will have been facilitated and families will have been facilitated at a range of hospitals 
uh, throughout this area. And that's just the, the geographic situation that we're in. OK, Padre Tobin, what's the objective of the march tomorrow? Well, the, the state of play is that the HSE has told staff, they told unions, and they've told management that the A&E in Navan Hospital and the ICU in Navan Hospital is going to close. Uh, we've asked questions of ministers in the Dáil, and they said, yes, the A&E and ICU is going to close. What's happened in the last couple of weeks is that the A&E has had a stay of execution. <clears throat> so in other words, uh, the, the closure is not imminent, as it possibly was a couple of weeks ago, but the closure, the, the A&E may have two or three months uh, at best. Um, in, in January, February and March, the HSE planned to return to the closure of this A&E. And Steve, Stephen Donnelly in questions in the Dáil stated this much. Uh, and actually, I asked questions of Eamon Ryan, and Eamon Ryan said the best thing was for actually Navin to lose its A&E. Uh, he made the argument for Navin to lose its A&E. <clears throat> now, the A&E is a life and death issue <clears throat> excuse me, for most of the people of, of Mead. I know thousands of people who are alive today as a result of the work that has been done in the A&E. People who have got heart attacks, uh, strokes, tumours, falls from ladders, brain hemorrhages, uh, burst appendix. One thing we will probably all need at one stage of our lives is access to an A&E fast. And if we don't have access to an A&E fast, it reduces radically our ability to survive. In Drogheda Hospital at the moment, there are patients who are waiting 11 hours uh, for A&E services. The staff in Connolly Hospital were out in protest two weeks ago because of the absolute stress that's on the A&E services in Connolly uh, Hospital. Uh, right now we know that there's 12 spare ICU beds for adults in the whole state, and yet the HSE seek to close the ICU beds in, in Navan. This, the ICU beds are the front line in the battle against covid and yet, we have this absolutely criminal decision, I believe, uh, to close the ICU beds uh, in, in Navan. Now, this may be the last chance that we have as a people of Mead to put Mead first, to actually stand up for our county and to make sure that we have our uh, uh, A&E protected. Because, you know, organising a, a campaign and a march such as this is not an easy job. It takes a full month of hard work to do it. And we can't be marching to the top of the hill uh, every uh, number of years in relation to this. What we're asking from Thomas and all of the elected reps tomorrow is that we want them to tell us that they oppose fully the closure of the A&E and ICU, not just for in the short term, but in the long term. We need to delete any reference to closure okay. of the A&E. Let's, put, let's put that question back to the minister. Minister. Well, the question that Patter puts, um, the one thing I do agree with him is that there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda could cope uh, with what Padder is talking about. Uh, it simply couldn't. Uh, and on that basis, I, I really don't think this is going to happen. Padder has talked about bringing people to the top of the hill. This has happened on a number of occasions. He tried to do it last year, but was stopped by COVID in relation to stroke. Stroke deaths in Ireland are down by 33%. It's a major national success in terms of our national stroke strategy. Our national cancer strategy, Michael. I was on your radio show many years ago. Uh, talking to people who got really good treatment in local hospitals uh, in relation to cancer. And I was very firm in my view that I supported the national cancer strategy. It was very difficult politically at the time. But I look back on that Stroke and had family experience now. with cancer. I fully support the cancer strategy. Okay, the but the, 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 the question was 
very different uh, to the response you're giving. He, he, was asking, he was asking if you oppose the closure of the emergency department in the short, medium and long term, if you like. The, the, the emergency department is, is, is not closing. I was asked this now. I would have gone on your radio show a number of weeks ago. I know there was, there was debate about whether it was available or not. It was always available by pre But will you, will, you oppose, will, you oppose, will you oppose the closure of the emergency department? This is the question he's asked you, in fairness, Minister. Will I was you, asked by Mead Chronicle, I'd like to have been asked this by you a month ago, was the closure of the emergency hospital, emergency department imminent in Navin Hospital? It is not imminent. Navin Hospital uh, is not Minister, I, Minister, I'm going to keep interrupting interrupting until you address the question uh, because he did ask you a question you said you'd uh, respond to it uh, will you oppose the closure of the emergency department in the long term I, I will do I will do whatever is safe for the patients of County Mead whatever provides them with so the that's that's non-committal that's non-committal with, with whatever whatever <clears throat> provides the people of Mead with the best possible treatment and care okay. that's what I will support and, and if, if that if that means if that means the closure of the emergency department if that's in the best interest if that's the safest thing if that gives people the best treatment possible you'll support that will you well, can I ask, you've, you've given Padre Tobin the opportunity to ask me a question. Yeah. Can I have the opportunity to ask Padre a question? Okay, a question but if, if you Pader. answer that one, then of course you can, yes. Well, I've given you, I've given you the answer. Okay, all right. That I will support the best possible treatment. Okay, okay. The so question uh, I have for Pader is, yeah. The question I have for Pader is, if medical experts, and I certainly accept medical advice and medical expertise, and I'm glad we did throughout the pandemic and throughout the, because we're now number one in the world for dealing with COVID, but that's by listening to medical experts. If medical experts tell Pader, that the service is unsafe, that people might die uh, because of services there, which is what doctors in Navin Hospital have said to me, although not to my satisfaction, and I'm willing to listen to them. If they say that to Pather, would he accept that? Well, I'll answer that question perfectly because I have spoken to medical experts. I've spoken to medical experts in Drogheda, and they have told me that the closure of A&E in Navin would be dangerous. Um, and, you know, uh, Thomas mentioned that he had spoken to uh, medical experts who told him that there's a danger in Navin. I would ask him now to take the time. That's, the, that, that, that's the saying that they won't ask you, that they won't put that to you. Uh, is that what you're saying? Well, what, what I'm saying is the medical experts I've spoken to saying that, say, that the closure of Navin A&E is dangerous. But if you speak to other medical experts and they tell you... I'm Range of medical experts. Okay, but the, the question, the question, the question he put to you was: Has he spoken to? Has he spoken to the clinical lead of the hospital, Mr. Jerry McEntee? Jerry McEntee is is in opposition to ninety percent of the clinical uh, um, senior clinical uh, experts in Drogheda Hospital at the moment. And see, if Thomas is only going to get his information from a paid individual from Ireland East with regards to the closure of HS the the, the A and E in Avon. Thomas Byrne is not going to be doing. Are you getting are, are you getting information from people who aren't paid? What I'm saying to you is that no, I, no, I, I, don't say something else. I address the question, please. Are you getting information from people who aren't paid? Because it sounds to me that the clinical lead in the hospital, whether he's paid or not, of course you'd expect him to be paid. Uh, would be somebody who would have a, a very important view on this. The clinical lead of the HSC in Ireland East is paid to implement HSC policy. The closure of Navinani has been hardwired into HSC policy for 12 solid years. Okay, so you have been told that, it, that, that you have been told that it, it, if you keep it open, it'll cost lives, have you? Well, no, I have I By, have by Mr. McEntee. I've never been told that, and unfortunately... By Jerry McEntee, have you not been told that? No, I haven't. So I have you spoken why. to him? Uh, have you spoken to him? If I can, just briefly. No, but have you because spoken to him? There, there was a meeting organised by the Minister 
And the minister invited the government's TDs and excluded the opposition TDs from that meeting. The minister has promised a meeting with senior clinicians. I have sought a meeting with Jerry McEntee in relation to this and have been refused it so far. I have never been told, because I would, I would like to ask the question, when has someone lost their life due to the lack of resources in Navin Hospital? Okay. And nobody has been able to answer that question to me. Okay. But I can tell you of hundreds of people who are alive today because of Navin Hospital and its A&E. And, and the, the final point I want to make in this, and this is really important, because the fact of the matter is the, the, the closure of Navin A&E is hardwired into the policy of the HSE. And as a result, they have been holding back resources and staffing and investment in our A&E for 12 years. And as a result, we have lots of locums working in our hospital, doing the best they can, but it's not ideal. All right. Let, let, let me go back to the minister, please, if I can. Why is it, Thomas Byrne, that ministers are standing up in our national parliament promising to involve opposition TDs in talks and, and discussions about this, and none of that has happened, and these meetings have taken place, the one which you mentioned, in which the clinical lead told you that it'll cost no, lives no, to keep sorry, it open? Michael, just, just to be absolutely clear, um, Jerry McEntee, by the way, is not some paid functionary of Ireland's hospitals. He's a person who's given a huge amount to me. He's a person who's given a huge amount to medicine and saved lots of lives. So he's someone whose word I take very seriously, and I suspect a lot of people will be disappointed by the way that Pallor has referred to him there today. Now, I've also spoken to people who work in A&E, and they're certainly very concerned about Drogheda, and I absolutely accept that. The Drogheda simply couldn't cope at the moment. Um, but what, what I would say is there was no meeting organised by the minister yet with clinical uh, uh, people. That's going to happen in the next two weeks and will involve everybody. I picked up the phone and I rang Jerry McEntee because he's the clinical lead uh, of Navin Hospital. He's the person who's actually in charge of medicine in Navin Hospital on an overall basis. I said, Jerry, what's going on? And, and that's where it came from. It didn't require okay. any minister for health. And tell us more. Tell, tell, tell us more, minister. Is he saying it's not safe? Well, I think he has, uh, to be fair, and I think it's, it's, it's probably not right for me to start quoting him. <laughs> I, know, I know. Sorry, no, sorry. Can I, can I just continue That's this? incredible. You've been quoting him for the last how, uh, 20 minutes, Thomas. Yes, yeah, sorry. Okay, okay, okay. What he has said to me is he's more than happy, as he's done before, to go on LMFM, but he wants the meeting with the Oireachtas members, etc., to happen first. And that's going to happen in the next two weeks. Minister Donnelly is going to meet with HSE next week. Uh, all of the Oireachtas members in County Mead will be invited to meet uh, the clinical uh, people the week after is my understanding. I mean, look, the Department of Health has been very, very busy with COVID. This, this is happening. We will hear from them. But I know what Minister Donnelly wants to hear very clearly is if if this if is this proposal is what's happening now at the moment unsafe? And, and let's get more details. Well, Michael, on that. I, certainly, I, ask the I certainly want One more moment. But also, what else? What else do we need to do to make sure that we provide a safe and efficient service for people? What's the investment? What's the investment in Navan Hospital? What's the investment going into Our Lady of Lourdes? What's the investment going into okay. Blanchester? Okay. A very huge proportion of my constituents okay. go, by the way, to Blanchester. Uh, 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 but but that, that, that investment may take place in tandem with the closure of the emergency department in the interest of patient safety and with that, no, the no, ICU the beds. Minister Donnelly has been very clear that the investment... That, that's been halted, but, that's, that, but that's, that's what's on the table, it seems. Well, Minister Donnelly wants to make sure that whatever investment is needed in Navin... Yeah in Drada, in Blanchester, in Cavan, okay. in the range of hospitals that are All used right. by people in my constituency, that it is provided. Uh, Toby. That hospital is open uh, and it's not closed. Honest, Let Pater Toby for, come back. For the people listening, Thomas Byrne saying that Stephen Donnelly is going to ensure that the necessary investment is going to go into the hospital, just go to Drada and spend 11 hours waiting in the A&E. Go to Conley and spend six hours waiting in the A&E. 
Look at the fact that today we have um, emergency surgery cancelled in Navan, uh, that we have orthopaedic surgery cancelled in Navan. Why are those things cancelled? Because there's so much pressure in the system, because there isn't the investment going in. Now, Thomas is casting aspersions on Navan Hospital A&E on whether it's safe or not. I would ask you, why is there a question mark there at all? The question mark is because of the fact they haven't put in the necessary consultants cover. Now, they have spent a, a half a million euros from the parliamentary question that I got yesterday on the ICU in the last 12 months, but they won't put in the million euros necessary to put the consultants cover in to make it one of the best A&Es in the country. And the reason they're doing that is because they've made a decision to close it 12 okay, years ago. That's the death by a thousand cuts Absolutely. argument, Minister. So, minister. It's just so frustrating listening to Thomas on this because the people... Let, let, let the Minister come back A&E. in there, please, Patter. And the idea that they don't deserve an A&E is shocking to the people of me. Minister. Sorry, nobody has suggested people don't deserve an A&E. The point, that, the point that I have made is that my constituents certainly use a wide variety of hospitals. Some of them live closer to but my constituents, Many live closer to Dada, and most of them actually live closer to Blanchardstown. That's the reality. But Navin is very, very important for a huge proportion of my constituency. And yes, absolutely, people deserve to have the best possible hospital treatment. And I'm glad you're acknowledging some of the investment because we don't hear about that. What's happening, there's, there's way more surgeries happening uh, and procedures happening in Navin Hospital than has ever been happening. That's going to continue. And this death by a thousand cuts, it's not the government. It's, it's, it, I would say it's Pather, because every few years, Pather gets up on the horse, tries to raise up another issue, another protest about this. And as I say, I wish everyone well going on the protest. But this was tried last year about stroke services at a time when stroke deaths have been reduced massively by our stroke policies. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. We're, we're going to conclude. I'm going to give time to both of you. Uh, Pader Tobin, uh, perhaps you'd like to invite people to attend tomorrow. Yeah, just in, in relation to Thomas there with regards to stroke, stroke was removed, as I said it would be, from Navin. It's no longer there. Listen, the, the, the A&E is the most important piece of infrastructure that we have in County Meath by far. Um, you know, there are thousands of people's lives depending upon it. One day, you or I could be dependent upon that A&E. This, I believe, 100% is true, that this could be our last chance to save that A&E. And I am absolutely delighted that we've seen such a mobilisation from from football clubs and soccer clubs and, and uh, active retirement, the churches, the whole of the community has mobilised massively for tomorrow's march. The stronger that march is, the bigger it is, the more chance that we have to, to tell the government that our health service needs to be built around okay. the patients, not around people who, at senior management within the HSE, but around the patients. It needs to have the proper investment so it's a safe place to function in okay. future. And you'd and like people to join you tomorrow? For one o'clock tomorrow at the Enterprise Centre on the Trim Road in Avenue. Okay, Minister, you wish everybody well who attends uh, that rally tomorrow, but like uh, your government colleague, Minister Damien English, uh, I take you, you won't be attending yourself uh, because you don't believe uh, there is reason to save Navin Hospital? Well, look, I mean, I certainly hope to be in Navin and no problem talking to people, of course, that's what I do, because first and foremost, myself, and I speak for Damien, and I'm sure Shane casts by saying we're representatives of the people in Mead. Navin Hospital is not closing. Navin Hospital remains open. I'm really glad that after a meeting that myself and Minister English had and Shane Cassis with Minister Donnelly, that he has halted uh, the HSE proposals in relation to this. The Minister confirmed this in writing to you, Michael, uh, when he asked you to do that. And what he's made clear is that we need safe and efficient services for everybody as close to home in as Navin. possible. Um, and that's that's what we need uh, in this region. We need a, 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 an absolute continuum of 
hospital service, as the vast majority of people, nobody goes to one hospital for everything. And that's the reality. Many people come from outside Navin to Navin for procedures, from all over the northeast of this country to Navin. That is what our hospital service is about. It's about saving lives. It's about providing services as efficiently as possible. And I am glad that we have somebody like Jerry McEntee, who's given a huge amount to me over many years in different formats, is in charge of Navin Hospital and is providing and today providing and tomorrow providing and will be providing for years to come. Uh, excellent quality okay. care and services at Navin Hospital. Okay, thank you both for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, we'll leave it to people to make up uh, their own minds uh, and indeed uh, if you're listening to us uh, this morning you heard uh, two very different perspectives there. You're welcome to share your thoughts with us but our, our thanks uh, this morning uh, to the Minister for European Affairs and Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East, Thomas Byrne as well as AIM2 Leader and TD for Mead West, Pater Tobin who's the chair of the Save the Navin Hospital campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, just a, a couple of comments in so far, and I think they're all well. So, just a, a couple of, about uh, the hospital uh, and Jerry, one of the people in touch with us, who says, "Fair play to Padder Tobin. I'd like Michael to ask Minister Byrne if he's opposed to, to the closure." I think the minister was saying that uh, he would be opposed to the closure if it would save lives uh, but if he's told that uh, keeping it open would cost lives uh, well then that could be a a different story. Declan is in Navan and he was on the phone to us he was listening with interest to that debate this morning regarding the hospital and he says the key thing for him is the word pause that the health minister used regarding the closure which suggests to Declan that it's only a temporary reprieve. He didn't say that it would never close. I think there's some truth in that, Declan. Thanks uh, for sharing your thought with us uh, this morning as well. A text from somebody who says it's a disgrace shutting down the A&D. Well, it's not being closed uh, yet anyway. I think Peter Tobin said uh, the closure seemed to him to be imminent a couple of weeks ago. Now it looks as though it's a few months off. Thomas Byrne saying uh, that the decision has been paused. Uh, he says, uh, shame on the pen pushers uh, who are like a bunch of snakes uh, trying to close uh, this hospital and well done to those who are trying to keep it open. Deirdre says uh, they can't close uh, the hospital, uh, the emergency department in the hospital. Uh, she said, I wouldn't be there I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the hospital. Thank you indeed uh, for your text to the programme as well. few texts so far. If you have any thoughts on it, uh, though, you're welcome to share them with us or any other subject for that matter. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Now we're going into another weekend and uh, this weekend, unlike most weekends through the year, it's an exciting time of the year, of course, especially for young children who will be out trick-or-treating. Or will they be out trick-or-treating? There is a pandemic after all. Covid is rampant in our communities and should they be out trick-and-treating? I, I just I think it comes back to the basic measures, Orla. So people can trick-or-treat, people can do the things they normally do at Halloween, but maybe don't do it every day over the weekend. Maybe don't make, meet up with multiple different groups of children over the weekend. And the core message and the key message is that and it will mean that Some children are very disappointed this weekend, but if you have a sick child, then please isolate them and don't let them mix with other children because RSV is circulating, because 
COVID is circulating and, and flu will be circulating in due course. So it's not a message that any of us want to be giving and it's not a message I'm sure that parents want to hear, but we do need to take the basic precautions. On the other hand, if we do take the basic precautions, there's no reason why people can't do the things that we normally do at Halloween very safely. Ronan Lynn, the deputy CMO, yes, you can trick or treat if you're not sick, if you're not showing symptoms uh, and if uh, you follow all the basic principles, you know, the stuff about coughing and keeping your distance and keeping your hands clean and so on. Uh, it's a view that's shared by the CMO, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan. The question of, of, of children getting out and about and doing the kinds of things at Halloween, I think there are ways in which that can be done safely to try and minimise the kind of interaction between people uh, and the parents will, will know and understand the responsible ways of doing that, both in terms of uh, their own children out and about and maybe other people calling to doors, that that can happen in a way that doesn't involve close uh, uh, um, personal uh, interaction. And obviously children who are symptomatic, all those basic measures should apply. Uh, and as I said, it's no different to anything else now that we undertake in society, whether we're talking about going out socially, whether we're talking about going out to work, uh, or whether we're talking about going out to a match or whatever it may be. You need to understand the kinds of factors that influence your risk are the kinds of important behaviours that you need to undertake both to protect yourself to protect other people from coming infected by you and that that should uh, uh, um, influence the kinds of behaviours that you undertake. Dr Tony Houlihan there uh, again saying yes it's okay for the kids to trick or treat over the weekend uh, but to think about it as parents and to make sure that they're safe that you're safe and indeed that uh, the people who will be getting knocks on the door are safe as well. And if you're getting a knock on the door and you're going to respond and give treats to kids for Halloween, uh, maybe you'd uh, think about your own safety and wash your hands afterwards and all of that sort of thing. Uh, keep it in mind because uh, it is a special weekend and it'll be a busy weekend and hopefully it'll be a happy weekend and more importantly, hopefully it'll be a very safe Halloween this weekend. Michael Reed on LMFM. Minister Damien English told us yesterday about changes to the employment permits system in this country, which will allow workers from outside of the European Union come and live and work here because a new flurry of work permits are about to be issued. The IFA has responded by saying this is positive, but more needs to be done. Paul Brophy is the IFA's horticultural chairman and a very good morning to you Paul thank you indeed for joining us Uh, those positives are the 100 permits for dairy farm assistance but you say that should be 500 permits uh, and you're saying that the 1000 horticultural operatives uh, the permits for those people is long overdue well, I, I'd be here. I'd be here speaking. Uh, thanks, Michael, for that I- I- introduction. But I'm here really to speak on the horticultural needs. Um, I'm horticulture chair, so we would have lobbied for um, work permits for the for the um, probably the last uh, two years uh, because our industry is extremely labour intensive. We would have probably forty five, fifty percent of our cost base is labour uh, related. And we have worked with uh, enterprise and employment trying to get um, Irish people to take up these jobs during the pandemic with no success. And, you know, Damien English's uh, office would have um, rigorously tested, you know, uh, our our information that we would have put forward in, in trying to recruit people and how necessary the labour is to our particular industry. And, and we just couldn't fill the vacancies. There was nice. nobody coming forward. 
Why? Well, what's the problem? I mean, if you've worked there and uh, you're paying people to do it, why is it that they don't want to do it? Is the pay not enough or is the work too hard or is it a mixture of both? It's a mixture of both. Uh, work is hard. In, in our particular business, it's a vegetable production. So it's outdoors in, in all sorts of weathers. So there's only particular people uh, like that type of work. Um, you know, we would be under huge economic pressure from cheap food policies that are sort of lobbied as being good for the um, good for the uh, what do you call it the people who purchase food in, in, in supermarkets and in shops but uh, long term the ripple down effect of that is that you know lower wages minimum wages is, is, is all that's affordable in these businesses and it's very very difficult to attract a person particularly when the pandemic unemployment payment was there it was mm. 50 euros a week for doing nothing but they're not that, it's person, not that low pay is it a, I mean the permits being issued uh, will pay people uh, will be for people who are paid between 27 and 30,000 euro uh, there are some exceptions it says which will allow employers to pay 22,000 euro but generally speaking it's 27 to 30,000 euro uh, yeah, for for ours we would have the twenty two thousand uh, euro. Right, that's what would be allowed for horticulture. Okay, uh, and people won't work for that. They won't do that work for twenty two thousand. When you when you advertise a job, if you get a couple of respondents, you know the first thing is most of our businesses are rural based, so they have to have a car to get to work because we're not on a bus route. So it's not like a factory in a town where a person can get public transport to us. So they have to factor in back the that if they have uh, childcare to be looked after and they say that when they add all the, the parts up it's not um, it's not viable for them to take up the, the employment. And is it viable for other people to come here and take up the employment because I'm sure they have all of those costs uh, and undoubtedly they're doing it to save money for themselves to move back home with or to send money back home. Yeah, they will come over and, and you know, live quite frugally for the, for the period here and whatever they can save, the value of that back in their country is is, is higher. They don't bring their children with them. If they have family, they leave them at home in, in the countries they come from and uh, would would, um, would endeavour to save as much as they can to better their lives back home. Right. Uh, why not charge more for the products? We, we, we continuously try to get more, but there's I suppose we're price takers and um, there's huge competition out there between the multiples and they use, you know, cheap food as, a, 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 I suppose, an attraction to get footfall into shops. And, um, you know, that's where the collateral damage in that. If there was more being paid for the product, we certainly would be able to afford to, um, to pay more. Right. Uh, so uh, is it exploitation of the workers? Absolutely not. Why would we be exploiting them when we're paying them 22000 a year to do work? That's not exploitation. Mm, but, I mean, I think you said yourself, uh, people here won't work for that money because they can't live off that money. Yes, they, can, they can't live here and raise a family, but a, a single person can come from a, a third country and um, work here and live here and save money, bring it back. That's not exploitation. You're actually, you're actually doing... Well, what's the better option? We stop producing it and we import our food and then the country becomes uh, food dependent. And you see what happens in the UK when they run out of truck drivers and the supply chains all start to, to grind to a halt. So, you know, we have... Um, we have to have our own food production and, and, you know, whether that means ultimately higher prices, which I hope it does, so that we can afford to pay more to, mm. to the staff that work. 
Okay. Uh, you said they live frugally, though. Uh, h- h- how are they living? Uh, I mean, you're paying them minimum wage, I, I take it, at about 22000 a year. Uh, do you provide them with accommodation as well? No, we arrange the accommodation mm. for them. That would be that would be through you know you'd, you'd, you'd arrange with landlords to set them houses and set that up. But and is that taken would, out of the twenty two thousand? Well, like anybody, you pay for your accommodation. Of course, mm. it is. Okay, okay. Um, so uh, when uh, they open their pay packets, uh, what are they left with? Uh, would it be little more than what they'd receive on job seekers? They would. They would have normal standard deductions, whatever. If they're a married, if they've a married allowance, mm. they get their married allowance, and everybody's is different. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know what the individuals, if they have, if they have children, if they have uh, dependents with mm. them, that they get. But it's 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 all a, you know the legitimate uh, tax that's stopped by the government. Oh, I'm sure it is, but after they pay for their accommodation, because the accommodation isn't cheap, as you know, uh, yeah. and, and I take it you're talking about group, group accommodation to bring down the cost when you say that they're living frugally and that sort of thing. Well, I'd say they're living frugally. They're not going to the pub and drinking at the weekends and not going out for meals. You know, they... People here like to aspire that they, if they mm. work hard for the week, they they let their hair down at the weekend. That's what I meant by living frugally. You know? Oh right, okay. You know? But 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 if you're working that hard, I mean, it's very very hard work, as you said yourself, Paul. Should you not uh, be entitled to let your hair down? Uh, whoever yeah. you enjoy that, maybe you'd like to buy a ticket to go to a game or go for a pint or go to see a film. Uh, I mean, uh, should people not be entitled to do that if they're working hard? Of course, they're entitled to do it, but it's their choice. If they can afford it, they, they they don't have that choice though. If they can't afford it, well, they can afford it on twenty two thousand a year. They, they can they can afford it if they want to, or if they choose to to save the money and bring it home and 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 spend it, uh, you know, in their own country when they finish their year or whatever they they work there for. Okay. No different than the Irish person has a choice to go to a football match or or go for a meal. All right. Or okay. if they want to save for a car, or save for something else. That's that's their choice. Mm. No different, um, uh, but the Irish people won't do it for that money, obviously. No, no, okay. no, no. All right. Uh, there's, uh, better, there's better and easier jobs out there um, in, in, you know, if, they, if a person doesn't like going out in, in, in wet and cold conditions, they can work in a warehouse, they can work in, 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 in a uh, fast food outlet, they can work in a hotel, and there's no shortage of, of, of work everywhere. You, you walk down the main street of any town, all you see is, is staff wanted, staff wanted. So they, there's plenty of choice. And that's why when, when people have that choice, they'll choose to do the better paying and the easier work. OK. Hence the need to bring people to this country. Paul, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Paul Brophy, IFA's Horticultural Chairman. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, thanks uh, to Philip in Navin, one of uh, the many people in touch with us uh, today. He says nobody seems to be mentioning all of the funds that are being eaten by the building of the National Children's Hospital. Philip is wondering, is it because of this uh, that other hospitals are underinvested? Thanks uh, for your call, Philip. Uh, I don't think that would be the case given that there's a plan that has been in place since 2013 to downgrade if you like nine hospitals eight of them lost their emergency department and ICU beds the one that hasn't happened to as yet is Our Lady's Hospital in Navan the HSE wants that to happen now that's what the board decided in July but uh, the minister has paused that decision for the moment Tony in touch with us saying Minister Byrne did his best to avoid answering questions on the programme 
this morning, but after listening to the debate, Tony says he's not any more confident about the future of services in Navan. Thomas says the plans have been paused by Stephen Donnelly, but he didn't guarantee that they will never happen. The people of Meath cannot afford to lose the hospital if everyone in the North East had to attend the Lourdes for medical treatment, then the knock-on effect on waiting times would be astronomical. Mary says that there's no way the Lourdes can deal with the volume of traffic it would face if it was the sole A&D in the northeast. Services and staff are already overstretched and uh, they're uh, they cannot handle any more pressure on the resource in Drogheda. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch. Lots of comments coming to us. We'll come to many more of them before the end of the programme. Uh, it was a slow start on the phones today, but by God, the goals are flying in now and we'll hear lots more comments, as I say, later on. But let's go back to Navin and a separate subject because if you were listening to us yesterday you'd have heard Independent Councillor Alan Laws tell us about four people including an 18 year old woman who were homeless and out in that dreadful rain uh, the night previous and we said we'd come back to it today. We did uh, approach Meath County Council uh, and they haven't responded to us as yet but Alan Laws is with us and a very good morning to you Alan and thanks uh, for joining us. Can you give us an update on the situation? Yeah, good morning, Michael, and thanks again for the invite to uh, come on your programme this morning. Uh, it's nice to have a little bit of good news for you this morning, Michael. Uh, the emergency accommodation itself uh, contacted that gentleman um, yesterday and confirmed that there will be a bed found from tonight um, in, in in that location. So that's good. His problem is solved. On the case of the young 18-year-old girl, this girl has never claimed social welfare before, so she's in the process of claiming her first social welfare payment through the, the post office here in Navan. Now that will satisfy that will satisfy Mead County Council's uh, link uh, to a location in County Mead, and so hopefully I will be able to uh, source accommodation for that emergency accommodation for that girl uh, probably on Monday. In the meantime, Michael, uh, because of a generous donation from a local. Uh, mead man, a mead businessman. I'm able to uh, find. I found accommodation for that young girl uh, for tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday night. And hopefully, when she fills out the form to claim her social welfare, I'll take a copy of that, send it to Mead County Council, and I, I should think that that satisfies them that her location will be in County Mead to claim her, her for social welfare fa- payment. So therefore, mm-hmm. I would hope that Mead County Council will accommodate her in emergency accommodation come Monday. But thanks mm. to the generous people of Mead and this businessman in particular, I, I have the ability to, to look after you, this young girl who has fallen through the cracks in the system. Like, it was, being honest, Michael, it was probably uh, the invite onto your show and the power of social media. Both of them made a difference. Mm. But I probably shouldn't have been on your show at all, Michael. Yeah, if the yeah, system worked yeah. properly, you wouldn't even hear about it. And I, I suppose uh, that's the sort of thing that would restore your faith in human nature because when people know there are problems like this, they respond, uh, and if they can, uh, well then, uh, they do so with uh, their wallet, which is uh, obviously uh, the case here, and a very generous response uh, from uh, that individual who's made sure that that girl will be off the streets, she'll be indoors, she'll be warm and safe and dry, uh, but most of all safe, as you mentioned yesterday, not a pleasant thing to think of an 18-year-old girl uh, uh, homeless like that, uh, out on the streets with uh, no way of uh, defending herself. Uh, But just explain to me a a little bit more about the social welfare payment, uh, because I'm sitting here scratching my head. Are you telling me that you cannot be homeless if you're not claiming social welfare? 
No, what, what the, the, the system at Mead County Council was, and the reason they gave me uh, for not accommodating this young lady was that she was originally uh, from Dublin. Yeah. Now, this young lady is, is, is out of care. Um, and unfortunately, we have a system, Michael, that when a person, a person could be uh, 17 years and 11 months and they get all the support and help from the state that they need. Yeah. But once they turn 18, the state abandoned them. And that's what's happened with this young lady here, I think. And basically, she's never claimed social welfare before. So, what, 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 we need. was she in care, Alan? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, right, but okay. because she hasn't claimed social welfare before, yeah. I presume that would be the case. Um, but what I'm saying to you, Michael, is that it, our first social welfare payment she can claim in county need. That satisfies Mead, Mead County Council's uh, requirement that you have to have a link uh, to county need to avail of homeless services in county need. Right. That satisfies that satisfies their requirement for that. Unfortunately, it's red tape that we really shouldn't be dealing with, it's, Michael, because yeah. it's an 18 Bureaucracy gone mad. I mean, you're telling me, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, you're telling me that if an 18-year-old is standing in front of me in Navin today and says, I've nowhere to go, I've no money... I need help, uh, I need accommodation, uh, that if I, the, I'm the council, I'll be saying, well, you're not from Navin, you have nothing to prove you're from Navin. Again, you're quite correct, and you invited me on the show before when, when I highlighted the fact that we had a family with a 15-year-old special needs boy and his 11-year-old sister. Mead County Council said the exact same thing to that family when they ended up homeless, and that was a 15-year-old boy with special needs. And they sent these children girl. on their way. Yes, because God. the father, yeah. they, they were from they were from Bulgaria originally. The yeah. father got a job in Dublin. They had no link to anywhere in Ireland in reality yeah. because they'd only arrived. And, and because, again, I found them in Trim, uh, yeah. they were sleeping at the side of a garage. Yeah. That was a 15-year-old boy and his 11-year-old girl. And we used this yeah. requirement again, a location to deny I, I, them. I remember it well, but I mean, yeah. you know, the rules are the rules and you can't blame uh, the officials or, or the bureaucrats for the bureaucracy. But, the bu- but there's do, something wrong with I the bureaucracy. Do, is, but there is something wrong with the bureaucracy if common sense doesn't is. come in. You're standing in front of me. You're a young person, well, regardless of your age, but particularly with a, a young girl, uh, I think, uh, who's going to sleep in the streets. Uh, you're standing in front of me. You're here uh, and you're looking for help. But I can't help you because I can't prove that you're here, really. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, when I met that girl the other day, like I got a PPS number off her, you know, I had to fill in the requirement of data protection. I had to fill in a data form to represented the young lady. I sent all that into Mead County Council. So your PPS number really describes who you are. So if you knew who the girl are, they could find out what they want. I gave the phone number of the young lady itself to Mead County Council. So they did all the requirements they needed. And mm. like I say, one of these days, Michael has said, keep on saying it to you. It's good that I'm on your show this morning mm. saying something positive. I just hope one of these days, Michael, I'm not on your show saying the opposite, that mm. something's about to happen to one of these young people, vulnerable yeah. young people, when and you I, walk I, away from the cause of red tape. Yeah, and I bet those people who are turning them away are thinking exactly the same thing. There's a lot of good people uh, who work uh, in uh, this field and their hands are tied by the rules. This is the bureaucracy of it. Again, we need clarification from the Minister. The Minister, again, went went public before Christmas, the new Minister, Dara O'Brien, and said the location would not be a factor in sourcing emergency accommodation anymore. Now, Mead County Council are still using uh, that, that requirement and the Minister is saying opposite. So, we need clarification from both Mead County Council and the Minister. What is the state of play here? Because we can't be allowing vulnerable people like this young girl uh, slip through the cracks and, and, and fall homeless because, again, 
something will happen one of these days when these vulnerable people are left down the streets because of silly bureaucracy, Michael. I mean, wherever the person yeah. shows up, we, we should have a system that helps vulnerable people mm. without any any barriers to, to gaining access to emergency accommodation. I fully understand that me, County Council, have to do proper assessments mm. and background checks mm. and all this. I fully understand that. That might take time, a little bit of red tape. We can work together to get around that. But when you get a point blank no, and we just, oh, yeah, oh, you have to walk away from an 18 year old kid, mm. Michael. I four daughters myself. Mm. That doesn't go down well with me. And I'm sure. You know, the officials in the housing yeah, office, I'm sure I'm the CEO of Mead County yeah. Council are parents themselves. Yeah, and I that's would, what I'm saying. Like I'm sure they don't like it either. Away from yeah. their children. That must be an awful job. I mean, it must be an awful thing to have to say no uh, and know that somebody needs help. But if your hands are tied, your hands are tied. Uh, and that's a, a question, as you say, for the minister at a, a national level. Yeah, it, it is a question. I mean, we need to be, we, we need, you know, there's lots of good organisations operating all over the country that are facing these type of barriers yeah. that we shouldn't be facing at all. The housing crisis in itself is bad enough, Michael. We should be helping NGOs get around these type of silly, bureaucratic, nonsensical uh, pieces of legislation that's stopping us from helping vulnerable people. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, independent. Thanks again, Michael. Oh, it was, it was the invite onto your show, I think, that made a difference here. Thanks very much again. Yeah, well, I, I think the difference was that somebody uh, was in a position to help, uh, and when they became aware of the problem, that's exactly what they did, and I think they need to be congratulated. And congratulations to you, Alan, as well, for the Trojan work that you're doing with uh, people who find themselves in that situation. And thank you for joining us on the programme today, independent councillor Alan Laws. Now, just uh, bring you one comment. Uh, and maybe some food for thought before we go to the break. It comes from somebody who's texting us saying, it's a pity that the local TDs in Dundalk, in Dundalk didn't try as hard to fight for the Louth County Hospital as they are in Navin at the moment. If they had, it might still be open and people from around Dundalk would not have to travel to the Lourdes and sit for hours. Thank you to the caller for the text. And I think uh, the TDs in Dundalk did fight very hard, all of them at the time, uh, to stop the closure of uh, the emergency department there. Uh, but there is a, another side to all of this, uh, and this is going back, I, I think, to what Thomas Byrne was saying about people going from one location to another, uh, that there are people going from Drogheda, let's say, to Dundalk now. Uh, and as our caller says, going from Dundalk to Drogheda, uh, you've got two hospitals. They used to do kind of the same thing. Now they do different things. So if you're in Dundalk uh, and uh, you've an emergency, you'll go to Drogheda. Uh, but if you've a minor injury, let's say, uh, then you would go from Drogheda to Dundalk or from Dundalk to Dundalk, if you like. Uh, and the difference is that instead of spending 12 hours or two days sitting on a chair in, in the old A&Es uh, waiting to be seen regardless of whether you were having a heart attack or you were dealing with a, a, a broken arm uh, that you'd go to Dundalk now where there's this minor injuries unit and you'd be in and out in 40 minutes uh, and Drogheda then dealing with uh, the more acute serious cases uh, that it does deal with in its emergency department and there the arguments uh, I think uh, that uh, those uh, who are in favour of that kind of reconfiguration put forward uh, whenever this discussion comes up as I said that's just some food for thought for you Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. If it was a, a case of uh, déjà vu, I think what you'd be remembering, sort of, would be Groundhog Day. 
It's back to the beginning, isn't it? 2,605 new cases of COVID yesterday. Neve Griffin is uh, the health correspondent for the Irish Examiner and uh, she's on the line. Very good morning to you, Neve, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Hard to believe we're back here uh, talking... Uh, I'm sorry? Yes, it's very disappointing, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's it's depressing. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if uh, you would agree. I thought the NEFID briefing uh, this week was uh, probably the most depressing, the grimmest of all, given where we thought we were going to be. Uh, tell us a, a, about uh, the incidence of uh, the virus in children. There's particular concern about the 5 to 12-year-olds, and it seems as though more 5 to 12-year-olds have COVID uh, in terms of uh, the percentage of that cohort than the adult population? Uh, just at the moment the, the cases have indeed sadly spiked in that age group. They were going down in September and then since the 4th of October have been rising again Michael, <laughs> excuse me. And at the moment they are the I suppose the highest incidence rate compared to every other age group. So we're at uh, 436 per 100,000 compared to just over 300 for adults. Okay. For 100,000. All right. Uh, so even though they were saying at the NEFID briefing that children this age are less, far less likely to get severe illness, um, you know, but I suppose that's not much reassurance to parents, really, mm. if you're worried about your, your young child, you know. Yeah, I wonder if uh, that's a reason for the rest of us to be very worried, uh, because if they're not showing signs, the incidence rate could actually be far higher. Well, there are worries about that. Um, you'll remember, I suppose, they stopped the contact tracing um, for school, asymptomatic school children at the end of September because we were all outraged at having to, to keep children at home. Um, but it seems now that, that, that around that time was when the, the rates started rising again amongst children. So I think I saw uh, Leo Radker saying yesterday that it might, it might be reconsidered um, to reintroduce some type of contact tracing for children. Mm. And that's what the INTO want uh, quite clearly, uh, mm-hmm. as we've been hearing uh, this morning. Uh, and there certainly seems to be very good arguments uh, for that. Uh, and uh, greater contact tracing all around, uh, I think people would like to see. But we're going into the Halloween weekend and children will be out trick or treating. Uh, and the advice seems to be that that's OK to do. Um, yes, the advice seems to be that it's all right to be outside but not to go inside and they're advising not to go with multiple trips. So if you have two or three children, they should go together and go once. Mm, okay. That seems to be the advice. Um, and I suppose you are, in fairness, you are outdoors yeah. and masked. I mean, children would traditionally be masked anyway for Halloween. Um but, uh, yeah, it's certainly not going to be the Halloween we were thinking we might have. Yeah, all right. Well, they're always very scary, these little children with their masks on. Uh, some people yeah. might find them all the more scary this weekend. Uh, but the advice to people, uh, I think, is if uh, they're answering the door to children, uh, to keep their own distance and wash their hands and do all of yeah. the things. This is the message that came from Neffet very strongly uh, during uh, the week, uh, that we need to take a, a level of personal responsibility. And you might be able to yeah. go to a, a nightclub, uh, but don't do it every night in the same way that if you're going to trick treating uh, don't be around every house in the estate. That's right um, I think Dr Ronan Lynn was talking about having sort of a contact budget for your household so that if someone goes to a nightclub Friday night maybe don't visit granny for a couple, you know until you're sure that you didn't pick up something and to look at if your children are going trick or treating at the weekend do they then 
also need to go and visit all the cousins over the weekend to try and balance it out. So it's definitely not the cocooning advice of last year, but they are talking about um, risk assessing what we're doing, I suppose, and, and looking at who you're in contact with. Okay. What are they saying about antigen tests? Uh, yes, the antigen war is in Ireland. Um, so their antigen tests are being used now in a lot of universities and even in some childcare centres. And there is growing calls for them to be used more regularly in Ireland in schools. Um, in England at the moment, for example, you can get an antigen test sent out to you um, quite sort of routinely mm. um, to, to, to try and keep an eye on the levels, even though actually levels are quite high there, over 40,000 cases a day. So there are calls here to start doing that more frequently. Um, but I don't know if any parents listening have tried to give an antigen, seen their, uh, an antigen test to a young child. It's quite painful. You know, it's very oh. similar to the, the PCR test. Right. Um, well, it's not painful for an adult, but having seen what happens when young children get them, it's not pleasant, Michael. OK, right. I, I haven't seen either you know. uh, in adults <laughs> or children, uh, but uh, I'm not it's sure. the same, you know, the, the swab up the nose and they just don't like it. Right, yeah. And I suppose you can understand that. Uh, but it, it, they're going to send antigen tests to people in the post. I was speaking to one of our, our listeners, uh, Joe, last week about this, and he says, uh, is there much sense to that? I, I mean, if you've symptoms uh, today and they send you a, an antigen test on a, a Friday, maybe Tuesday evening before you get it. Um, oh, no, I think the post would be more or less same day delivery, really, wouldn't it? And you'd have Saturday. Well, I suppose you don't have Saturday mm. post everywhere. It probably depends. Um, he's probably got a, a point depending on where you live. But, I mean, if you're concerned, you can buy antigen tests in pharmacies now and the pharmacist will be able to advise you how to use it and how mm. to get the results. Um, so that's probably a, a quicker option, really. Okay, there's a, a lot of messaging going out to people who aren't vaccinated uh, and mm. a particular concern about uh, women uh, who are expecting uh, children uh, and uh, a rise in the number of uh, people uh, who are in maternity wards uh, who have uh, contracted uh, the virus for that matter. Uh, yes, that right. that's right. So there's a big push. I think the last figure I saw was 283 unvaccinated people in Ireland, um, unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. So there's a big push to get those last people um, into the system to, for them to consider it, I suppose, you know, to, to ask for information. And there is growing concern at the number of um, pregnant women who've been in ICUs, I think 15 now since the end of June. Mm -hmm. And some of them, uh, Dr. Peter McKenna and Dr. Cleena Murphy were saying this week, you know, ventilated for weeks. So you're away from your baby, some of them giving birth early, like uh, premature delivery um, to try and protect the baby. So there is a lot of concern. And again, you know, advice if you're pregnant or considering pregnancy to go and talk to your obstetrician or to your hospital midwife um, or your home birth midwife. If that's your, your option and try and get as much information as you can. And it's safe to get the vaccine if you're planning a pregnancy or yes. if you're at any stage in a pregnancy. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, Dr. Cleana Murphy spoke to her yesterday from the Coombe Hospital and she was advising anyone doing fertility treatment to also consider vaccination. It, the, the vaccines do not impact on your fertility or that of your partner. Right. Uh, there has uh, been some increase, has there, in uh, the number of uh, pregnant women who are getting vaccinated? 
Uh, yes, there is. The HSCs late did a survey um, last week and they're now saying it's up to uh, 58%, which is a big jump up. It was at about 30%. Right. Um, but Dr. Murphy said, unfortunately, that's an average. So mm. there are some units with, you know, lower levels. And she was really urging women to, to come forward and try and get information. Right. Uh, it's um, obviously well below the 93%. Uh, so the uh, yes, pregnant women right. feeding into the 7% of the population who have not been vaccinated, but also uh, a lot of people uh, who weren't born in this country, foreign nationals who are, are living and working in this country, uh, choosing not to get vaccinated for whatever reason. Um, a, a small number, I mean, I, I suppose, again, it's, it's small numbers of, of different groups. And there is, I suppose, in some, if you're from a country where the vaccination rate is low, which it is low in, in some um uh, Eastern European countries, you might feel that that information is more trustworthy mm. than what's here. So again, the HSE are putting out information through social media in, um, I think, 26, oh, 26 or 36 languages, a right. lot of languages, okay. yeah. Michael, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, mm. to try and counter that and give people, e- you know, more accessible information. Right. Okay, so that they can understand the importance of it and how they can protect themselves uh, and yeah, others exactly. for that matter. Exactly. Okay, what's your sense of things, Neve? Uh, because you've been following this closer than most of us over the course of uh, the last 18 months or however long it has been, and we're all obsessed by it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, I, I mean, do you think that we're, go- we're going to go into another lockdown, or where is it going at this stage? Well, the, at the NEFID briefing that you mentioned at the start, um, I think every journalist in the room, we all asked him about lockdowns. Um, and he said, Dr. Holland said at the present moment there, it's not their expectation and it's not something they're considering nationally or locally. Um, I imagine what we might see, though, is a ramping up of the, those measures, you know, the antigen testing, more, more use of the COVID pass, more emphasis on masking. Um, and hopefully that will be enough, you know, that we can mm. handle it ourselves without any more lockdowns. And are they going to implement uh, the uh, stringent use of these COVID passes? We know that they're being a, a joke to a large degree. Now they're talking about fines and there has to be ticketing and so on. Is all of that going to work, do you think? Well, you'd hope so, I suppose. I mean, that's one thing we can control ourselves. At Nefet, we're saying if you go to a place and your COVID pass is not checked, that you shouldn't go in. That that's, you know, to, for us to give a sign to the to the restaurant or the pub that we don't feel safe there and we, we don't want to go in. Um, and I did notice this weekend I was checked more often than I would have been the weekend before. So I think the message is getting through because um, that that does give you a sense of security that you're in a room where everyone is vaccinated. Mm, okay, very important, obviously uh, as well, because I think it was uh, Luke O'Neill, Professor Luke O'Neill, who said uh, that non-vaccinated people are 63 percent more likely to pass on the virus to somebody else. Uh, yes, yes, he did say that. Even though there's other evidence then saying, you know, if you're vaccinated, you you are still at risk of transmitting. Um, unfortunately, I suppose there's different kinds of vaccines. We're maybe used to the vaccine against um, measles, which you get once as a child, which you just get as a child, not once, but as a child. Um, so these vaccines, they do stop you getting severely ill. They do work very well against um, the, the mortality, the death rate. 
but there is unfortunately still a risk of transmission when there's so much of it around, I suppose. Okay. Neve, it's always nice to talk to you. Thank you for talking to us today and for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much indeed. Neve Griffin, Health Correspondent with The Irish Examiner. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some comments thanks to Peter and Dundalk, who's in touch to say, fair play to the people of Mead standing up for their hospital. The same tactics were used to close uh, the Louth County Hospital. His advice to people of Mead, the stand firm, don't let them decide, divide and conquer. And thank you for that. Another call to us uh, from Mary, who is in Navin. She's 70 years of age and worked in healthcare for 40 years. And she says it's incredible listening uh, to what she describes as as the measured truth coming from Thomas Byrne. The bottom line, Mary says, is that Our Ladies was put there by the people of Mead and the cheek of them to say it's okay to close the hospital. Any suggestion to that effect is dangerous and it's absurd. They have been trying for years to close it. We've been very quiet people in County Mead, but when it comes to the hospital, we won't be so quiet. They have a big fight on their hands, says Mary. Thanks uh, for that as well. Uh, Another comment uh, that comes to us from Caroline on WhatsApp, listening to the debate on the hospital. Minister Byrne keeps talking about saving lives and the face uh, that uh, people come on to Navin. Um, I beg your pardon. Uh, about saving lives uh, and um, people come to Navin from different parts of the country for different surgery. Uh, he's simply muddling the waters. Um, the debate is about A&E closing in Navin and that's the end of it. A&E is a vital service uh, the heart of every hospital. I live in Drogheda and have unfortunately personally been through A&E twice myself in the last year and twice with my dad. It was horrendous. The waiting, the lack of information etc. Uh, and uh, to me as a person living in Drogheda the closure of A&E would make things worse. They've stopped calling it A&E, which is kind of interesting about your comment, Caroline, because uh, in Drogheda you go to the emergency department and you may wait some time there, but if you have a broken arm, as I was saying earlier, you'd go to the minor injuries unit up in Dundalk and you'd be in and out in no time. Uh, and that is one of the advantages, I think, uh, that's associated with this reconfiguration, as they call it. Joan says that uh, there needs to be more money allocated to provide an out-of-hour service for homeless people in this day and age. Nobody should be sleeping on our streets if uh, they don't want to be there. Joan is in Navan, by the way, uh, and uh, Navan has uh, certainly been uh, the area that we've been focusing on in the programme today. Somebody else in touch with us from Navin. That's Pat who says, what about the ambulances going to the Lourdes and Drogheda and people sitting in queues uh, in uh, turn uh, back to Navin? Wake up government, he says. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Somebody says, what about the 800 people working in Tara Mines? Uh, they'd be dead if it wasn't for uh, Navin, uh, that's uh, Teresa who's in Navin as well. Uh, somebody else, Joe, says if Navin A&D does close, Michael, God help the ambulance service, the pressure will be on the paramedics who have to travel longer journeys with life-saving patients. David says fair play to Navin and uh, the Save Our Hospital campaign group and uh, the rest of the TDs and me should be hanging their heads in shame. If it wasn't for Navin A and E, I'd be sending, I wouldn't be sending you this message. Uh, very similar comment I think from Paul Mullen who is in Kells and he says thanks uh, to the hospital the nurses and the doctors and the staff only for them I'm back on my feet after a stroke how on earth can you close Navin Hospital when people of me depend on it as much as they do this can't happen uh, and it, it won't Uh, happen uh, and uh, people should come out and show their support Uh, and he says shame on those uh, who uh, will support uh, the closure of A&D 
thank you indeed. They're just some of the comments that have come to us. Now, as you've been hearing, Facebook has rebranded. Its founder, Mark Zuckerberg, announced the new name, Meta yesterday. Zuckerberg has also given an insight into his vision of the next version or the development of the internet. A totally virtual world. Something that's called the metaverse. Imagine you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually. It has things that are only possible virtually. And it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. Hey, are you coming? Yeah, just got to find something to wear. This is science fiction in real life. You wake up in the morning and whether you get out of bed or not, you can spend your day living your life in a place you design with people visiting you or you visiting people with 3D graphics. All you need to do is put your headset on. Oh, hey, Mark. Hey, what's going on? Hey, Hi. Mark. What's up, Mark? Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh-huh. Who made this place? It's awesome. <laughs> right? It's from a crater. I met in L.A. Uh, this place is amazing. <laughs> Boz, is that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be the robot. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I knew you were bluffing. <laughs> hey, wait. Where is Naomi? Let's yes, call her. Naomi. <laughs> Hey, should we deal you in? Sorry, I'm running late, but you've got to see what we're checking out. There's an artist going around Soho hiding AR pieces for people to find. 3D street art? That's cool. Send that link over so we can all look at it. This is stunning. Okay, that is something. That's awesome. Wow. Oh, I love the movement. Wait, it's, it's disappearing. This is amazing. It's kind of like you're living in a, a cartoon. I mean, living in a cartoon. All these wonderful-looking people in this wonderful-looking place going around the place. Check out this forest room. Huh, let's see it. Koi fish that fly? That's new. Now, Mark Zuckerberg's presentation went on for much longer than we have time for here and probably needs to be seen to be really understood. But life in the metaverse, as it's going to be called, is a life that you create yourself. You put on your headset, you decide what you look like, you choose your clothes, you create your house and decorate your house, invite friends around or go to a concert Float around in space, if you prefer. The, the metaverse is life lived in a headset. You're going to really feel like you're there with other people. You'll see their facial expressions, you'll see their body language, maybe figure out if they're actually holding a winning hand. All the subtle ways that we communicate that today's technology can't quite deliver. Next, there are avatars. And that's how we're going to represent ourselves in the metaverse. Avatars will be as common as profile pictures today, but instead of a static image, they're going to be living 3D representations of you. Your expressions, your gestures, that are going to make interactions much richer than anything that's possible online today. You'll probably have a photorealistic avatar for work, a stylized one for hanging out, and maybe even a fantasy one for gaming. You're going to have a wardrobe of virtual clothes for different occasions, designed by different creators and from different apps and experiences. Importantly, you know, you should be able to bring your avatar and digital items across different apps and experiences in the metaverse. Mad, isn't it? Complimenting someone in the future could be like saying, oh, I love your avatar. Beyond avatars, there is your home space. 
You're going to be able to design it to look the way you want, maybe put up your own pictures and videos and store your digital goods. You're going to be able to invite people over, play games and hang out. Uh, you'll also even have a home office where you can work. Your home is your personal space from which you can teleport to anywhere you want. Now, speaking of teleporting, there are gonna be all kinds of different spaces that people make. Rooms like the ones that we just saw, but also games and whole worlds that you can teleport in and out of whenever you want. Teleporting, right. So the idea then is that instead of spending all day on your phone, you move in. It's like living in the internet. You're gonna be able to bring things from the physical world into the metaverse. Almost any type of media that can be represented digitally, photos, videos, art, music, movies, books, games, you name it. Now, lots of things that are physical today, like screens, will just be able to be holograms in the future. You won't need a physical TV, it'll just be a $1 hologram from some high school kid halfway across the world. And you'll be able to take your items and project them into the physical world as holograms in augmented reality too. Beam them up, Scotty. God, I don't know. I'm feeling old this morning. Younger minds will probably envisage all of this better than some of us who think it's not that long ago since this was the stuff of fancy, the likes of which you'd see maybe in the Twilight Zone or E.T. or Star Wars. And while this may sound like science fiction, we're starting to see a lot of these technologies coming together. In the next five or ten years, a lot of this is going to be mainstream. And a lot of us will be creating and inhabiting worlds that are just as detailed and convincing as this one on a daily basis. So even though it's still a long way off, we're starting to work on some of these foundational concepts today. Horizon is the social platform that we're building for people to create and interact in the metaverse. All right, the metaverse. That's uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, dreadfully interesting, nonetheless. Terribly interesting, it has to be said at that. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Matt Aaron is uh, forecasting temperatures uh, today of between 11 and 13 degrees Celsius. There's not much difference between the two, is there? Or is there? Well, it depends on the context. For example, do you know that the world is 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than it was in the 19th century? The result of that is global warming. Uh, And indeed, 200 countries are coming together this weekend and over the course of the next two weeks in Glasgow for what's called COP26 in the hope of saving the planet from warming because of fossil fuel emissions. The idea is to cut the emissions well below 2 degrees Celsius uh, to 1.5 degrees uh, in order to stop the consequences of this warming. Deirdre Duff is the Communications Manager with Friends of the Earth Ireland and a very good morning to you Deirdre and thank you indeed for joining us. I think we're seeing some of those consequences as we speak, uh, whether that's uh, to do with uh, the rising seas or flooding or drought or wildfires or indeed uh, the loss of uh, many of uh, the planet's species and 550 species could be lost from the planet uh, this century if uh, our behaviour doesn't change somewhat. Are you optimistic uh, that the world leaders will not just come to an agreement but will implement the policies that they agree on? Hi Michael thanks for having me on. Um, Good question Um, so I think the short answer is I don't think that these this current COP is going to be a silver bullet. 
Um, if we look at, so basically just, I suppose, to give a little bit of background, um, six years ago we had the, the Paris Agreement, which um, some of your listeners may be familiar with. Um, and as you say, uh, back then, world leaders agreed that we would strive to, to limit warming to 2.2 degrees and to strive for 1.5 degrees. Um, and they're now coming back. They've met every year since, bar last year because of COVID, um, but they're now coming back to kind of... Uh, agree on the rule book of how, how that is going to happen and also to revise their individual pledges and what each country is pledging to do um, in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Um, unfortunately, if you look at the pledges so far, they're uh, adding up to about 2.7 to 3 degrees, which would be absolutely devastating. Um, it would make you know vast parts of the planet uninhabitable. Um, and it looks like, so we've seen some of the, the pledges that countries are going to be revealing and unveiling at the COP. Um, we will see some more, um, but realistically speaking, it looks like they will not add up to 1.5 degrees. Um, but I, I think this COP is about, um, you know, we're, we're definitely in a very serious situation, but it's, it's not the outcome of this one way or the other isn't going to be the end of the game, end of the story. What will um, you be watching out for over the next couple of weeks? Will you be watching out for who's there and what they're saying and what they're pledging or will it uh, be a question of who's not there and uh, what's not being pledged to for that matter? Yeah, I mean, look, what the pledges will add up to, you know, when we get them all together, it will be important, like how far off are they from 1.5? I think you touched on something there in saying what they're saying. I think if we see individual countries um, and listen to what they're saying um, and, and, and seeing are there things there that they're committing to, um, you know, in, in the coming weeks and months and years in terms of their own country's emission reductions, um, and can we then, you know, build public pressure to hold them to that, but also to ramp up the ambition much further because we know it won't be enough. Mm. Um, I think the the really important thing too to stress is 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 the global justice element of this. Like climate change is a global problem and we need global solutions to it. Um, but in order to, that, to get that kind of cooperation, it needs to be just, it needs to be fair. It sounds um, so little though, doesn't it? 1.5 degrees Celsius. I mean, as I said, uh, you look at the forecast today and you're talking about a couple of degrees, none of us think very much of it. Yeah, but you are talking about dramatic changes on the planet if emissions are, are not... Uh, costs to bring a, a, about uh, that uh, type of reduction uh, and you could be looking at green pasture lands turning into deserts uh, which would mean uh, that people wouldn't be able to live there and that would also lead to the displacement of people and hunger on the planet. Yeah and I think the really important thing to say is that this isn't a problem for the future, it's a problem that's happening now and there's you know huge numbers of people all around the world, mostly in the global south, people who have done practically nothing to cause the problem in comparison to to corporations and, and rich people in the global north. And they're already suffering. They're already not being able to put food on the table because of the climate change that we have caused. Um, you think of some of the Pacific Island nations, their countries are literally under threat. Mm. Um, so for these people, they, this is not a, a, a problem of the future. It's a problem now. Of course, mm. it, it will affect us all, um, but it's not affecting us all equally. Mm. And we all want to save the planet, though, but we don't want to reduce the national herd. We don't want to pay more for coal. We don't want to pay more for diesel. 
uh, we don't want to pay for it I, I think uh, but there has to be some pain or if, if there is to be this gain or there could be catastrophe yeah, and I guess the interesting thing is that the public probably are are not as uh, you know opposed to climate action as we would think. So we, there was actually a poll published yesterday. Um, this was polling Irish people, and it found that eighty percent of people back the government's new plan to cut our climate changing pollution by fifty percent, fifty one percent in. So i.e., cutting it in half by twenty thirty. So 80% of people were in favour of that and mm. 50% actually uh, wanted, thought we should be going further, you know, and doing more. Mm. And the other interesting thing with that poll was that um, not only were people supportive of, of climate action, but they also thought that it would have a, overall, it would have a positive impact on their lives. So three times as many people thought the, that the impact of climate action would be mostly positive mm-hmm. as those who would thought it would be mostly negative so 60% of the Irish public were were saying that they, they felt that climate action would be mostly positive so I think that should give um, a lot of confidence to our TDs and indeed to all politicians you know who to give them the, 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 the mandate to support the action that we, we so desperately need you know that the public are behind them on this mm. um, and I think sometimes we tend to hear kind of from vocal vested interests who are kind of worried about maybe the short-term impacts on their own industry. And I think sometimes these concerns can kind of shout loudest, but actually there is a, a very solid majority of the public that really think we should be making climate action a priority. Okay, Deirdre, uh, you know. thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's Deirdre Duff, Communications Manager with Friends of the Earth Ireland. That's our programme for today. Hope you have a lovely weekend. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.